Christian liberty or Christian maturity? Is there a difference? Are you ready to face the truth? Face the Truth is the weekly podcast from the Truth Church of Olathe, Kansas, with our pastor and Bible teacher, Bishop Gregory Riggin. Thank you to everyone who is listening. I trust that today's episode will be a blessing to all those who tune in. When dealing with convictions, our personal convictions may not apply to everyone else. God gave us the personal convictions we need to be saved. Pushing our personal convictions on others can cause confusion and create a stumbling block for our brother or sister. And it works the other way around too. Just because we can do something without being tempted or adversely affected doesn't mean our brother or sister can do it too. We talked about an example of this last week, wine versus grape juice at communion. We discuss a few other examples this week. We can prevent putting stumbling blocks in front of people by following Romans 12 and 10. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Christian liberty is not the go-ahead to force others to accept our freedoms. Our love for our church family causes us to put guidelines on ourselves to do everything we can to never cause someone else to stumble. The right choice would be to support our brothers and sisters. See, loving our brother and sister may come at a personal cost. And if we truly love them, we will be okay with that sacrifice. In order to protect and uplift our church family and win souls, we may have to deny ourselves something we really enjoy. Looking at the origins of traditions can give us a better reason not to do things that may harm our church family. We must also remember that we are witnesses, and our influence is not just on fellow Christians. The unsaved are also looking at our lives. 1 Timothy 4.12 says to be an example of the believers in word, conversation, charity, spirit, faith, and purity. Is this even possible? Let's listen in and find out. I think I'll stand with those men who walked with God and made the decisions they made not based on their intellect, but based on their relationship with God. Why did they stand against them? Because they felt it was displeasing to God. Why are men embracing it? Because we have Christian liberty. Right. Now you tell me which is the stronger argument. Does this Christian liberty draw you closer to God? Same thing's true. I mentioned this earlier. Facial hair is one of these big, hot topics. And even conservative men are quick to get up and say, well, I don't have any scripture against it. Well, I do. So I'm tired of hearing men say they don't. If you don't, get your Bible down and study it a little bit more. Because I do think there's scripture against it. And among other things, when I get through giving you the scriptures I'm about to give you, let us keep in mind through all of these, what we started out talking about is this liberty that allows us, requires us to consider our brother and sister. Right. This liberty that says, I'm not going to do something that might cause them to stop. Not, well, I can do this and it's not going to drag me down. 
But if I do this, will it drag someone else down? That's what we've got to keep in mind. We'll just throw it out there. So first of all, Leviticus 13 and verse 45 says, And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent, his head bare, and he shall put a covering upon his upper lip. And she'll cry, unclean, unclean. Now, when I got to studying this, scholars tie this covering to what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11. That hair is given for a covering. Paul didn't just pull this out of thin air. Paul had to have some scriptural basis for using hair as a covering. And Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Right. So Paul makes this usage that hair is a covering. In Leviticus, it says if a man has leprosy, he wants to let the whole world know he's a leper so they will stand afar off. So here's what he does. Shave his head. Well, there's something to think about. I'll stay away from that one. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, pastor. And put this covering on his upper lip as a statement of uncleanness. Now, they are to also verbalize it, unclean, unclean. But the purpose in shaving the head and having this covering, which, as I said, many scholars will tell you, in other words, they were to grow a mustache, shave their head, but have a mustache. Why? So people at a distance would know this man has leprosy. This man's unclean. And it became a symbol that God created of uncleanness. Hmm. Now, when God establishes a symbol, that's different than man. You know, we've got our symbols in our flag. We've got our symbols. The red means this. The white means this. The blue means this. The stars mean this. The stripes mean this. We create these symbols. But if God establishes a symbol, Paul says that a woman needs to have power on her head because of the angels. God's the one who set this long hair for a woman, uncut hair for a woman, as a symbol of her submission to authority. And men keeping their hair cut short as a symbol of his submission to authority. The angels look at that and see whether we're submitted to our authority. They are the defenders, the protectors of God's glory. And if they're going to protect us, they need to know that we are in submission to God's authority because his glory only follows his authority. There is no glory without his authority. We keep our hair cut short as a symbol that God created, that we're under authority and the angels see that. And if we don't keep it cut short, they see that. And if a woman does not cut hers, then that uncut hair, the angels see that as a sign that she is in submission to her authority. But if she cuts it, trims it, burns it, damages it, shortens it, the angels look on that. This woman's not defending God's glory. She's not, she is not submitted to her authority. She has no right to God's glory. And the angels will not defend her. So God honors the symbols he creates. The same thing is true of the fruit of the vine and the bread. 
So Paul says, you do this unworthily, you're eating and drinking damnation to yourself. Because that's a symbol God created. We didn't create that symbol, God created it. When God creates a symbol, all of heaven recognizes that symbol. And here in Leviticus, God creates a symbol of uncleanness. And this symbol is the mustache. Hmm. That's a sign that you're unclean. Now, there's scripture number one. Scripture number two comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul said, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, that's all he says about the men. Their hands need to be holy. He just mentions holiness, but he doesn't give an explanation. He doesn't give any specifics when he's talking about men. But in the very next verse, he says, In like manner also that women. So here's what he says. He didn't really specify with men. But he said in the same way that men need to be holy, women need to be holy. So now whatever he's going to say about the women has to apply to the men as well. Because he's saying it's in like manner. The holiness that's applied to women is just like the holiness that applies to men. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. So women aren't the only ones that have to be modest. Men have to be modest. Right. With shamefacedness. Now, dig deep into that word, shamefaced. Look at that word. That's 1 Timothy 2. This word, shamefaced. It's an interesting word. There's an idea, there's a concept here of bashfulness, of downcast eyes, modesty, a lack of pride. Okay. That's what it means to be shamefaced. That you're not doing anything that would show pride or be in any way flirtatious or forward. That's what it means to be shamefaced. Women have to be shamefaced. Now, we've used that for years to say women should not wear makeup because women only apply makeup for one of two reasons, and usually both, pride and flirtation. There's no other reason for a woman to wear makeup. We say women can't wear makeup on their face because it shows pride. And flirtatiousness. What does a beard show on a man? Now, it's interesting because I know people say, well, look, in the Old Testament, God specifically talked about their beards. And there's reference to their beards. You're right. right. Exactly right. Go visit the Hasidic Jews. Go look at the Jews who follow the law in its entirety. And check out their beards. Do they wear them? Yes, some of them do. But those that wear them don't trim them. It just grows because the Old Testament forbade them to trim the corners of their beard. So here's the thing with the Old Testament discussion of beards. It was an all or nothing proposition. You're going to have one, then you let it grow. You don't cut it. You don't trim it. You don't dye it. You don't dye it. <laughs> you don't braid it. You just let it grow. There's no pride in that. Right. That's not appealing to any woman that I know of. Oh, I just love that nasty looking beard. 
That's how they describe it. <laughs> yeah. You know, now one that's neat and trim or a little goatee, you know. But I'm telling you, I've never yet seen a man wear one that he's not constantly stroking it, right. combing it. He's got pride in that thing. Same thing's true of his mustache. Yep. I believe that 1 Peter 2, 8 and 9 prohibits wearing a trimmed beard. Okay. Can I just get up and say that the scripture says you can't wear one at all? No, I'm telling you that according to the scripture, you want to wear one, you just have to let it grow wild. I've said that to men before who said they wanted to grow one, and I've never yet had anyone take me up on it. Right. There is a second witness in the scripture as to why we should continue this prohibition against facial hair. All right, the third is 2 Thessalonians 2.15. says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. You see, this is one of the arguments that, well, that's just been a tradition. Yes, but a tradition set by whom? A tradition set by men who were praying, God-fearing, right. spiritual men. Who started introducing facial hair to the modern-day Pentecostal movement? I know they want to go back and look at Frank Ewart, but a lot of those men, you go back and look at them, and many of them, the pictures you have, they weren't even baptized in Jesus' name at that point. So you can't just take any picture you pull up and say, well, look at them, look at the." No, they were in a progressive state of coming to truth. Some of them never got rid of it. There's a lot of things and ideas they never got rid of. All right? But in our modern Pentecostal movement, who started introducing the wearing of facial hair to our movement? Was it spiritual men? Did it come from anointed men of God standing up before their congregations and saying, I've been praying about this and I believe God wants us to do this? I've never seen that happen. No. You know where it's come from? The same place that most other things we've let down on have come from. The charismatics. That's where it's come from. So mm. when you trace back where these traditions come from. I'm embracing a tradition. Yes, absolutely it's a tradition. And I don't deny that and I'm not ashamed of it. But when you look at the origins of this tradition and then look at the origins of those trying to buck this tradition, you tell me which way we should go. Right. Paul makes it clear there are some traditions we ought to hold on, depending on who gave those traditions to us. So I think that gives me a third witness. Right. Now, there is a fourth. Acts chapter 15, verse 24. That's the basis. Now, that's not the witness. The witness is going to come from the next chapter in chapter 16. I want to lay a foundation by reading Acts 15, verse 24. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your soul, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. All right, now, this is the foundation for where I'm going. The apostles made it clear, there is no commandment requiring circumcision. Does not have to be done to be saved. There were those out there saying you had to. It did not have to be done to be saved. All right, we all agree on that point? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You don't have to do that to be saved. 
But look at what happens in the very next chapter. All right, this is towards the end of chapter 15 that this statement is clearly made. There's no commandment to observe circumcision. But we open chapter 16, verse 1, Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, wait a minute. Chapter 15 makes it clear. There's no need. You do not have to be circumcised. Chapter 16 opens. Paul takes Timothy and circumcises him. Why? Why did he do that? It's been made clear you don't have to do that. Why didn't Paul just walk in his Christian liberty? Right. And say, you Jews just need to suck this up. Get over it. What's the reason why he didn't Paul want, had him do it? He didn't want to put a stumbling block in front of the Jews. He yep. knew that Timothy would be better accepted among the Jews if he was circumcised. He did it for the promotion of the gospel. Wasn't required, wasn't necessary. But Paul knew Timothy would be a lot more acceptable in the eyes of the Jews if he did it anyhow. I'm telling you that even in today's society, and you can look this up, you read any book on dressing for success, they'll tell you that by and large, people with facial hair are not trusted. Yep. There's something in our psyche that when we see men with facial hair, our subconscious tells us he's hiding something. Right. Whether that remains to be true among the unchurched, it's probably going to change. It probably is changing. But I'm going to tell you this. There are a whole lot more apostolic churches that will accept me right now without facial hair than would accept me with it. So this idea of I've got the Christian liberty and you just need to accept it is totally anti-scriptural. Right. It's not an onus on them to accept me and my liberty. The onus is on me to honor them and become more acceptable to them. Paul said, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. If I've got to deny myself something I want so I can be more acceptable to someone, and that would give me a better chance of winning them, I'm going to do it. And I submit to you and to all of our listeners, you are going to be far more accepted. If not in the non-apostolic ranks, you're going to be far more accepted in the apostolic ranks without facial hair than you will be with it. So why? These people say, well, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Okay, if it's no big deal, shave it off. Right. Because more people are going to accept me without it than will accept me with it. So just shave it off and become more acceptable. Seems like it's a very easy thing to me. That's why I say it frustrates me for these men, even conservative men, say, well, I've got no Bible for it. I've got no Bible for it. 
I believe I've got four scriptural passages to back up my stand against facial hair. And especially, as I said, when you take these in light of, don't put a stumbling block before your brother. You say, well, I can wear this and I don't get proud. Okay, but how many men can? Right. I don't accept that in the first place, but if I did accept it, how many others can do the same thing? And how many are going to grow it and fall into pride and flirtation, but they do it because they see you doing it? So maybe that answers your question about where I stand on Christian liberty. I do believe we've got Christian liberty, but I don't believe we have the liberty to force others to accept our freedoms. I believe that our love for others demands that we put guidelines on ourselves to do everything we can do to never cause someone else to stumble. If you have the liberty, if you have the freedom of choice, make the right choice, the choice that would be supporting your brother. There was another scripture, and may I submit one more to that list, which falls in line with your latest point, which is Romans 14, 16. Romans 14, 15 says, If thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Back to your point, Brother Goff. Walk with charity. Yes. And then it goes on to say, Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Yes. Putting this in contrasting language so we can understand the importance of that individual that's sitting across the table from us. Let not your good be evil spoken of. doesn't matter how good intentioned you are. It's important that you temper or discipline that Christian liberty with charity. You're right. That's a perfect witness to go along with it. Now, can you just read all three of those scriptures just yes. without commentary? Just read them and let our listeners just hear it in context. Read. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Yes. So when you look at that whole passage, that scripture about let not your good be evil spoken of, how many times have we used that? But when you look at the context, he's saying, in your mind, you think it's okay for you to eat this meat, but you know that there are people out there that it's going to destroy them to see you eat it. So in your mind, it's good. I can right. do this. It's good. It's okay for me to do this. But don't let your good be evil spoken of. The whole idea behind that scripture is keep in mind that you're hurting your brother. And then the very next verse, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not these things that you want to do. But what is it? It's righteousness, yeah. which is doing what's right, and peace. Peace. Now, let's think about that in context, because we quote that verse talking about, oh, the peace of God that's in us. But wait a minute. 
What's the context here? Peace at the table. Peace. It's peace among your brethren. Right. So what is the kingdom of God? It's not you being able to do what you want to do and what you've got no conviction against, but it is living right and maintaining peace and having joy through the power of the Holy Ghost. That's what the kingdom of God is. So there's a lot to think about here. There's a lot to consider here. In the same passage, backing up to verse 13, it says, Let us not, therefore, judge one another anymore, but judge this, rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yes. So... Can you apply that to this topic? <laughs> well, absolutely. That I mean, that's what we've been talking about yeah. all along. I don't have to apply it. It applies apply itself. itself. We're in that holiday season. I've got friends who are very adamantly opposed to the celebration of Christmas. I am not going to go into their church and talk about celebrating Christmas. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get behind their pulpits and try to convince their people. Mm. This is one of the things that has bothered me about social media. Some of these men, I'm telling you, and maybe they'll hear this, and please, if you do, my brothers, I'm not attacking you, but I'm asking you in Christian love to consider what you're doing. It's one thing to get on a preacher's forum and fuss about Christmas. It's another thing to go on social media when you're connected to other people's saints and you're out there crying against this celebration and talking about how heathen this is and how pagan this is and making all of these statements on social media when you're connected to saints whose pastors do not preach against it, you are not operating in Christian love. I'm not operating Christian love if I'm connected to your saints and I'm out there posting Oh, this is crazy to be against Christmas. This is ridiculous to be against Christmas. Now, I've done some posting in defense because the other men start out going on the attack. Now, again, if you want to get on a preacher's forum and you want to fuss among preachers, as long as you can keep a good spirit and love one another, have at it, brother. (laughs) I'll stand back and ring the bell. (laughs) But don't get out there among the saints. And try to convince the saints that what you preach is right when you know their pastor doesn't preach that. You're defeating the purpose. You're creating confusion. God is not the author of confusion. This is one of the reasons why when the door opened for me to go to Africa, I was very adamant to the man who invited me over there that I would not come preach to his church. I would only preach to other preachers. I'm not going to go over there and try to convince a bunch of saints something their pastor's not preaching. Right. But I will try to convince those pastors. And in convincing the pastors, it becomes their job to go back and convince the saints. Of course, you understand what I mean by saints. I should say members, because if they're not baptized in Jesus' name and don't have the Holy Ghost, you understand what I'm saying. But it's not my job to go to somebody else's pulpit 
and try to change them. If I feel like they need to change, that's a conversation I need to have with their pastor. Because if he doesn't support it, the moment I'm gone, nothing's going to change. Right. Not one thing is going to be accomplished except bringing confusion. And listen to me. I've had people sitting in my congregation very anti-Christmas. We had a man attending here that was so against Christmas, he refused to let his family come to church. I think it was from like November 1st until sometime in January because he didn't even want their kids to hear about Christmas. So it's okay to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, which is (laughs) very clearly in black and white. (laughs) Right. But don't mention Christmas. All that did was create confusion among my people. And that's not the only one. I've had others. I dealt with a family in one of my very first pastorates that they had a little flyer that they were handing out every year. Come wintertime, they're handing out these brochures, not flyers, but pamphlets against Christmas, knowing that I didn't preach against it. Mm. All they're doing Mm. is creating confusion. Right. They're not accomplishing any good. They're creating confusion. In fact, the first time I ever got up and taught our church on why I do celebrate Christmas, I had never done that all my years of pastoring. But the first time I did it, it was because we had a young lady dating a young man whose dad was a pastor and his dad preached against Christmas. And he was trying to convince her that it was pagan, it was wrong, it was heathen. And it put doubts in her mind and confusion in her mind. And she came to me and said, with this being so pagan, why do we do it? And I said, you know, that's a good question. So I'm going to address it. So the first time I ever got up and taught why I celebrate Christmas, I did it because someone else was creating confusion among the people I'm privileged to pastor. And I felt like as a pastor, I had an obligation to clear up that confusion. Right. I didn't just get up and defend my own beliefs, which is what people will accuse me of doing. And I have made changes before in things that I believed because when confronted with differing ideas, I go in and study it. And what I'm going to preach and teach to my people is going to be the result of what I have studied and prayed about, not what I think makes me the happiest or my wife the happiest or whatever else they want to claim. I've made stands at great cost where I've changed preaching against things that I didn't preach against before. But because I was confronted Is this really a sin? I had encouraged people not to do it. I told people, God will bless you if you don't do it. But someone came to me and said, look, if I obey what you're saying, my husband has said he'll leave me. Hmm. And so I want to know, is it a sin? If it's a sin, I'll take the consequences. If it's not a sin... I'm not going to destroy my marriage over this. So that put me on the spot. And I said, sister, give me a few days. I'm going to pray and I'm going to study. 
and I'll give you an answer. And I did. And that next Wednesday night, I got up and taught the result of what I'd found and what I had felt, and it was that that was a sin. wasn't just a matter of it would be good if you didn't. It was that God clearly condemned it. And she came to me and she said, all right. She said, I know what this will cost me. But since it's a sin, I'm going to give it up. Well, her husband did not leave her. Hmm. And in fact, her husband ended up getting baptized in Jesus' name and receiving (laughs) the Holy Ghost. Dying full of the Holy Ghost. My, my, my. I didn't know that that was going to be the outcome. Right. So when people say, well, you're just doing it because you know your wife likes it. And I've heard that so many times. Well, the only reason why they allow it is because their wife likes it. I mean, I could use the same argument about a lot of things. Right. I've got a dear friend who's adamant against Christmas, and his whole deal is it's Catholic. It's Catholic. It's Catholic. Come out from among her, or come out from her, my people. Quoting God in telling the Jews to leave Babylon. Come out from her, my people. And Babylon... To him is the Roman Catholic Church. And God's saying, abandon anything that's got Catholic ties. Christmas has got Catholic ties. So abandon because the very name is Christ Mass. And Mass is a Catholic thing. So you can't have anything to do with it. But every year on February 14th, he bought his wife a gift and a dozen roses. Right. Now, February 14th, is the celebration of the birth of a Catholic priest. St. Valentine. That's right. St. Valentine. Don't tell me you're opposed to anything with Catholic origins if you're going to celebrate Valentine's Day. And sure don't accuse me of celebrating Christmas to please my wife if you're going to give your wife roses on Valentine's Day. Right. Because you're doing that to please her. If I may, really to kind of bring this down, you're talking at the ministerial level, which I'm a local minister, but something that's more applicable to me is at the saint level. And that is what you're saying is a preacher might come in from one church to another and preach his convictions to another pastor's congregation, to another church for which he's not spiritually responsible. And that's, Honestly, that's directly in contradiction of what Paul was talking about there in Romans and then also in Galatians early. But at the saint level, too, we also have the same responsibility. That if God gives me a conviction, there's two sides to the coin. Earlier, we were talking about Christian liberty. But there's also the self-righteous mentality that I'm convicted against social media. I'm convicted against, you know, whatever, whatever you want to come up with. And that self-righteous mentality... Through that self-righteous mentality, they begin to share that conviction. And when push comes to shove, oftentimes it's not even really a conviction. It's just a strong opinion or an opinion formed by somebody they respect or whatnot. And so I think if we could get the spirit of what Apostle Paul was trying to write to the New Testament church is in multiple epistles, it would be a much simpler design. What God had originally planned, let the pastor be the pastor. Even if you're a pastor of another congregation, you pastor your congregation, let the pastor pastor this congregation, and then those of you that are in the congregation, let the pastor be the pastor. And then there, we have a simple approach that would minimize all the confusion, whether coming from the bottom up or from the top down. This seems to me to be more like 
Christian maturity, not yes. Christian liberty. Yes, and, and I, that's probably a much better way to describe it, is Christian maturity. And, and you're exactly right. It definitely applies on a saint-to-saint level. And as you said, from both sides of the coin, that you need to, number one, not flaunt your own personal liberties if you know that it's going to bring a stumbling block before a brother. The other side of the coin is this. Don't get up and start trying to force others to do what you feel like God's talked to you about. Because in doing so, you could just as easily set a stumbling block before them. Right. Because you're doing this supposedly out of conviction. God's put this on your heart to do it. If God doesn't put it on their heart to do it, then what could happen to them? There, there's a number of things that could result. Number one, they could start saying, well, I guess I'm just not spiritual. And then the devil starts playing with their mind. And well, I guess I can't hear from God. And you know how the devil works and start beating them down as though they're not as spiritual as someone else. And then they just give up. So it set a stumbling block that way. Or they could try to adopt this conviction and not have the compulsion of the Holy Ghost and not have the grace from God to keep this conviction. And so they're trying to keep it by their own human abilities. Join us next week on Face the Truth as we continue our discussion on Christian Liberty and Maturity Part 3. Thank you to everyone who has joined us for today's podcast. We want you to know that we are here to help you in any way we can. If there is anything we can do for you, please don't hesitate to contact us. Send your prayer request to prayer at olaythetruth.com. That's prayer at olaythetruth.com. If you live in the Kansas City metropolitan area, we invite you to join us for our services this week. Sunday morning at 10, Sunday evening at 6, and Tuesday evening at 7.30. For those who cannot attend, we will provide a live stream on our Facebook page, our YouTube page, and our website, olaythetruth.com slash live. Until our next podcast, take care and God bless.